is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen to us every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Of course, you can listen to the show at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall, which is where you can also access the chat room during the show and follow Know It All for regular updates. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown, president of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we create education equity plans and promote equity in education in compliance with federal civil rights law. Our website is allisonbrownconsulting.com. There you can read our blog and subscribe to the ABC Know-It-All newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. Today on Know-It-All, it is my absolute honor and pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Roger A. Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is formerly Assistant State Medical Examiner for the State of New Jersey. This was prior to his appointment this year to the Chief Medical Examiner position for the District of Columbia. Dr. Mitchell is board certified in anatomic and forensic pathology by the American Board of Pathology. He has been a forensic biologist for the FBI and worked in forensic pathology. He is also a writer and is the author of the forthcoming memoir, The Price of Freedom, A Son's Journey, which you can pre-order at www.freedomhasaprice.com. I think most importantly, he is a spiritually grounded father, husband, and son, and a longtime friend of mine. I welcome you to the show, Roger. Thank you so much for being on Know It All. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure, Allison, to be here. Thank you so much. Well, why don't you talk first about the book, The Price of Freedom, A Son's Journey. I want to just briefly read a quote about the book from your website, freedomhasaprice.com. It says, we all have the capacity to forgive, but do we have the strength? This book is about a son who forgave his father so that he could become the man he was meant to be, a doctor, a father, a respected leader, and a faithful servant of God. Talk about the book, Roger. Why this book? Why now? And why this title? Well, uh, the, the 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 book is, as you described, a memoir. It really um, talks about my journey um, from childhood up until current time. Um, I I was uh, in a in a in a great home growing up. Um, my mother and father were married. Uh, up until I was about eight years old, where my father became um, cocaine addicted um, and got caught up in a fast lifestyle. Uh, At that point uh, was when my life and my sister's life were were really turned upside down. And having a a drug-addicted parent um, brings a sense of inconsistency uh, into a home that no family is prepared for. Um, so the book talks about the the pieces that I did have in place that allowed me the consistency and structure necessary to grow up and be successful. Um, and it talks about the choices that had to be made in the midst of fatherlessness uh, in order to cope with um, that loss or that void. And uh, so, so it really it, it allows the reader an insight into what we're currently seeing in uh, our culture um, and in our country, um, a community of fatherless boys that are engaging in behavior um, that is, 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 is truly inconsistent with success but is, a, is essentially an acting out of an environment that is not consistent and may not be as loving um, of an environment that, that, a, um, that a son may have. So the book kind of puts that into context and then talks about some of uh, the challenges that I faced coming through undergrad and then medical school. It's a book for everyone, those that are 
that are trying to be physicians that want some insight into what it takes to be a doctor, those that are um, interested in forensic science or have that CSI buzz that, that want to read about some of, um, some of my most interesting forensic cases um, and its link to um, our uh, social, uh, maybe social injustices, and then the, 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 the single mother uh, that may want to get some insight into creating an environment for her son uh, that is going to lead to success. And then the, the fatherless son or fatherless man uh, about manhood principles and how we engage in manhood principles to allow us to be the proper fathers and brothers uh, and sons to be leaders in our community. So we're really excited. Um, it's um, we, we, We're looking to print within the next couple of weeks. Um, like you said, you can pre-order on um, freedomhasaprice.com. Um, the first 500 copies um, will, uh, will get signed uh, personally by me before they go to your home. Um, so we're, we're, we're really excited. So talk about being a, a chief medical examiner, um, the chief medical examiner for Washington, D.C. What do you do in your day-to-day work? Um, the, the, the medical examiner is a forensic pathologist, so I'm a physician. Um, I, I, got my, I did my undergrad at Howard University. Um, then I, I, I did two years as a forensic scientist for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and there I was um, the first black man in FBI laboratories um, back in 1997, um, where I got exposed to forensic medicine um, and forensic medicine uh, in the context of violent behavior and violent crime. Uh, And so uh, I went to medical school at uh, New Jersey Medical School, University of Medicine and Dentistry in Newark, New Jersey, I was born in Newark, raised in South Orange. Um, Now it's Rutgers Medical School, um, after which I went to George Washington as a resident, uh, ended there as chief resident, and then I went on to fellowship at the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in New York City. The reason why I lay that, that, that training concept down is that most think of the medical examiner as just performing autopsy examinations, um, which is what I do. I'm trained to perform autopsy examinations. Um, The primary role of the medical examiner is to establish cause and manner of death um, in sudden or unexplained circumstances. Um, Mm -hmm. And so those manners of death may be accident, homicide, suicide, undetermined, and natural. But as the chief medical examiner, my job is to set the vision for the medical examiner's office within the jurisdiction that I serve. So um, my job here now is to, is to do that in a way that ensures that public health um, and justice is at the forefront. So, you know, I... I know that for you this work is very personal and uh, it it is not just a job or a post that you um, take and are done with at 5 o'clock and and turn off. Why is it that this is personal for you? Well, my, my, my reason for becoming a medical examiner was uh, at the FBI, I would uh, look at items of evidence from violent crime, uh, and it would have a, um, the same hue, uh, the same story associated with it. Um, it may be uh, urban, um, poor, or rural poor uh, victims of, of violent crime. And, and so that exposure led me to want to understand why um, there was so much violence in uh, impoverished communities. Uh, 
so I actually set out to go to medical school to understand that question. Um, and then, you know, working in urban centers like New York City, uh, Houston, Texas, um, Newark, New Jersey, um, and Irvington, Patterson, uh, Atlantic City, um, and now uh, Washington, D.C., um, violent behavior um, is, is claiming the lives of, of young black men um, at an epidemic rate. Um, and, I, and quite frankly, Allison, I see myself in, in the victims of violent crime, um, in the victims of homicide, I see myself. So um, I have a vested interest um, in, in being part of the solution. So like you said, when I come home, it's not a, it doesn't turn off. I, I just change my hat and may, may mentor a, 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 young, a young boy or um, uh, be part of my men's ministry uh, at my church and work with men in general um, about um, our manhood and what manhood really, really means in, in today's society. So, um, you know, as a physician... Um, and a uh, and a father and a husband. It, it is important um, that that I I seek out to be um, a a solution provider. Um, that we uh, continue to talk and act out solutions in our community that decrease death, and, and they might not just be in violence. I mean, we, the majority of what we see in the medical examiner's office are those individuals with natural causes of death that die in their homes uh, and don't have a doctor to sign their death certificate. And so it's a function of access um, versus um, a function of anything else. So, and that's the majority of cases that we see in all jurisdictions are the the, um, the young and old alike that have considerable natural disease but now ha- have no physicians taking care of them. Um, so this is this is uh, this is definitely something that um, that as as the years have gone on, um, it's important for me to now be on the side of prevention. And being the chief now, uh, it allows me to um, bridge those relationships. Uh, that a normal medical examiner or medical examiner system would not be interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that you um, you really have leveraged your platform and your position to uh, create opportunities to speak to black people and black communities. Um, and I'm wondering about that opportunity. So, you know, 82 people we've heard were shot in Chicago over the July 4th holiday weekend, 82 people, and 14 of those from media reports died. Five were actually shot by police. And, you know, this is what you see and deal with regularly, and I'm just wondering how you create opportunity out of such heartbreak. You know, um, the, the, the people in our community that are dying um, uh, only die in vain if we do not have the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. So this opportunity that you've given me now to speak to your, um, to your listeners about um, violence as a public health issue um, and um, getting communities to think differently about how we deal with violent behavior um, is why it is, 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 is almost our mandate when these type of tragedies happen. Um, you know, in your, in your uh, newsletter, um, the link to this conversation about what happened in Chicago is out of Al Jazeera um, media uh, construct. Mm-hmm. So this this issue of violence in our urban centers um, 
has international visibility. The real question is, how are we going to respond to this epidemic? And and, and it's important to ask that question because um, these amount of people shot, um, uh, although tragic, are less than what we often see in the active shooter, um, single active shooter homicide violence that we have come to bring such media attention to. Um, mm-hmm. This 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 is this is even more than these recent um, uh, killings in malls and schools and in um, movie theaters. So it's important for us to elevate this conversation in a way that says that urban violence is an epidemic in the form of public health that has its roots um, in uh, disparities within education, economics, housing, health care, and the criminal justice practices. And then no longer allow public health to abdicate its responsibilities as the coordinating entity towards the decrease of violent deaths and the mortality and morbidity surrounding violence in our communities. This is, although, a law enforcement problem to ensure that there is not a continued loss of property and life uh, it is a law enforcement problem from that aspect. But it's a public health problem when these young people are living in food deserts and mm. don't have access to the same groceries that suburban communities have. Or um, their school days are shortened and don't have access to meals in their in their schools, or their schools aren't um, teaching relevant um, functional vocational work in the schools. And it doesn't have to be vocation from the standpoint of when you and I were in high school when they taught shop and mechanics, Mm -hmm. but vocations that are relevant like coding or um, computer science. Um, So when they come out of high school, they're capable. So there's a lot of work that can be done to ensure there's a wraparound in all sectors to decrease violent behavior. Um, And and, and I I don't direct this at Chicago or Illinois. I know the the director of public health for the state of Illinois. He's a mentor of mine. Um, and, And I know that our policymakers are trying to continue to wrap their head around how to decrease violent behavior in urban centers. Um, but I think the voice of the public health sector needs to be louder um, and ensuring that they're at the table to develop these solutions. And not only um, the public health sector, the community um, needs to be educated to be calling for public health-related um, solutions to violence um, versus um, always asking for law enforcement solutions to violence. And and what what one of the threads that I hear in what you're saying is context. Context very much matters. And you know, I am a lawyer, Roger, so I did do some research here uh, on what a forensic pathologist is and what that means and. From what I understand, that means that you really are supposed to determine what happened. So what went wrong with the person that you are examining on your table? Um, And so, you know, we often hear that if you just take the guns off the streets or you just put the fathers in the home, then things will get better. And that, that... to me, feels very incomplete. And uh, as a you know expert in as an expert in, in equity, I think equity is always my lens, and that doesn't seem like a very equitable approach or a complete approach to fixing what 
what ails us as a community, as a black community in particular. So as a forensic pathology and talking about context and thinking about what is going on and what is going wrong in our communities, you know, what is your diagnosis? You talk about food deserts and, you know, schools and and some of the, the ways that schools are failing our students. What other things do you see as happening with our communities? I mean, you're 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 exactly right. Um, uh, this is um, it's the 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 issue is comprehensive, um, and the solution um, is is comprehensive um, and must be. Um, so, um, I'll take my my own life uh, uh, for instance, and 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 can read more about it in in the book, but um, I can't imagine if um, I did not have a strong, professional, educated mother um, or uncles um, that were fathers in their homes or a emphasis on the importance of education in my home uh, or access to a faith uh, system um, that showed itself to be um, complete. Um, And then examples and peers um, where success um, and achievement uh, was our benchmark for competition. if I didn't have consistency in both emotional and physical safety, um, uh, if I had to worry um, at a young age about uh, the basic necessities, um, uh, if I didn't have an advocate uh, in the form of my mother when I was attempted to be typecasted as a child that uh, couldn't achieve. Um, these things, these these principles of, of, of parent advocacy, solid parent homes, whether single or two-parent or grandparent, um, uh, the equity of uh, having a living wage um, and the importance uh, of a community uh, play, being placed on achievement in education um, and a solid foundation in faith has always been our culture. Um, that's when our, when our culture was at its most successful. Those were the principles that we hold true and near. Um, so the, 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 the issue of um, violent behavior or violence in a larger community um, being able to be solved by single concepts um, that only works if that single thing is missing. Um, hmm. So if the consistent caring adult is missing, is the only thing missing in a home then guess what? A consistent, caring adult may work. And research has shown that consistent, caring adults or the formation of a surrogate family structure uh, where a family, a consistent family structure doesn't exist works wonders, right? So mentorship works. It's hugely successful um, among young people. Um, that's why extended days at school, um, that's why the Harlem Zone concept works so well um, because they create these, the, this discipline and this accountability among young people um, and a consistency and a love environment uh, that really mimics what we know a, a strong home should look like. And then it empowers the parents to be as loving um, uh, 
and, and, and a parent that may have access to their own improvement in education and, and, and jobs. And this is not just urban. This is, this is the human experience. So in rural, um, uh, you know, and this is not, you know, purely um, race-based, uh, these the successes in um, rural white America or Latino America, um, those successes will still be present in, in that type of strong family construct. Um, family is probably the most important, but if a, a, a community um, through its policy and education, economics, housing um, is not friendly to a solid family, um, then it will dissolve that family. So if the housing a, a solid family is in, in that environment, and that housing and in that environment breeds a violent behavior, then there's going to be more risk that that solid family, an individual from that solid family, may succumb to um, a violent lifestyle because of the violence around them. So it, it's, it's extremely dynamic, um, as you're suggesting. Um, and it is not, there is no silver bullet. Um, but what, we have, what I find um, in, like you said, in my dissection, of this social pathology, right, this social disease that we're engaging in um, or we see, I see that, that we're, we have good solution, but they're often siloed. So if mm -hmm. law enforcement has a good solution, it's law enforcement and no one from public health knows about it. If the mental health sector or social services sector has good solutions and are treating young people or treating adults, um, then it's siloed and, and the non-governmental organizations or NG, NGOs are not involved or engaged. So um, um, Deborah Prothow-Stith up in Boston, um, her model uh, was to break down those silos. And mm -hmm. um, so part of that, that was to ensure that all teams working on all things were multidisciplinary. So if housing was looking at how to build better um, housing, low-income housing, or even multi-use housing in a community, well, people from social services, people from public health, people from law enforcement, people from the NGO and community, people from the mayor's office, they're all at the table talking about that housing. If social services is talking about how to provide proper reading and proper access to recreation or proper access to job placement or computer um, internet um, type of access and training or resume building, then people from other disciplines are at the table having a conversation that is relevant um, so that those silos are broken down and there's cross-talk in this these good programming that's occurring throughout the nation, that's occurring in Chicago, that's occurring in D.C., that's occurring in Newark, um, but often are occurring in a way that's not speaking to other excited and intelligent and capable individuals trying to reach a solution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, what I, what I really appreciate about that, that message from you is... is the discussion of you know cross sector alliance that is equally focused on um, individual responsibility and the need for systemic change and I think that's a very uh, delicate balance and it's a balance that I think our government certainly struggles with, and uh, you know, I think it's it's very refreshing to hear you articulate so well that very delicate balance between, you know, pointing fingers at individuals who really are uh, reacting to systemic challenges and barriers that they face on a regular basis. Uh, and I don't know that you and I have had this conversation, but we have something in common, and I know that you touch on this, I'm sure, in your book, The Price of Freedom, um, but our dads both have had to combat addiction, uh, which is one of those, you know, 
personal and yet systemic challenges that so many of our family members and our people have to face and have to contend with. Will you speak on that? What what does that mean to you, addiction, as a man, as a dad, as a doctor today? And what does addiction mean as an illness more generally for our communities? Wow. Um, I did not know that. We had not had that conversation uh, about your father. Um, and it um, gives me more of a... A, a, a solid foundation of understanding why I wrote the book. Um, mm-hmm. Addiction is, is really a disease of despair. Um, mm-hmm. It's a disease of of getting to a place um, where um, uh, you're making a choice um, to feel to feel better about uh, your situation uh, that you can that you could. You could not currently feel without self medication um, and then once once that occurs um, we we understand addiction to be both 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 environmental um, and um, genetic so some some are more more uh, prone uh, prone to be uh, to be addicted. Others are not um, because of their genetic makeup. Um, and uh, so in this disease of addiction, um, it has truly a mental health component. Um, so mm-hmm. my father um, um, started cocaine um, after his mother died. His mother died from cervical mm-hmm. cancer. Um and she died from cervical cancer, uh, and my dad was, uh, she was his, she was his uh, number one fan. He was the only boy in the home, um, and uh, she accepted him. Where, where my grandfather was, um, was a very uh, 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 fatherly, hardworking man not not much on excuses um and my my father found refuge in the love of his mother um and when she died um he had already been in in circumstances where um he was a living a, a, a somewhat of a fast lifestyle um even then and that set the stage for uh that one time where um, when asked and had previously it said no multiple times to a friend of his that asked him if he wanted to get high, um, asked him this time in the midst of his depression. Um, and that high that he got um, in a time where he was at the most vulnerable was a high that lasted um, and he chased for 15 years. Um, and so... And 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 he and he lost relationships um, during those years, and he burnt bridges. Um, uh, and most um, addicts even um, break laws. Uh, um, and that addiction has a moral implication. Um, but that addiction is is truly um, not a not a crime from the standpoint of the addiction itself, although crime can stem from it. Um, and so addicts require treatment. Um, and so, you know, the Affordable Care Act, it's, it set itself up to support more mental health-related functions, I believe. Um, uh, and I pray that that is indeed the case as it, as it gets its legs to treat addiction in this country. Um, because now addiction has a new face. Um, addiction's face is the is the young white boy, young white girl in suburbs that are now mm-hmm. addicted to oxycodone um, and prescription drugs. Um, its face is the is the um, unsuspecting 
what they are suggesting is unsuspecting now, using heroin. So they're graduating from oxycodone, and um, because it's harder and more expensive to get prescription pills, they're moving on to heroin. And so um, we're seeing a rise throughout the country um, in heroin use, but that heroin use is um, not the old black man junkie that's leaning on the corner. Um, it's it's the suburban um, white kids, um, and so um, addiction is is a, is a very serious problem. It has always been such, um, um, and 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 so uh, we're going to have to marshal that same type, the same type of concepts, um, same type of concepts that lead to violent behavior, lead to um, the type of behavior that lead that 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 leads to um, drug addiction. Mm-hmm. So I'm I am um, certain that this is in the book as well, the price of freedom. But I wonder, you know, uh, just if you would preview for us and just talk about the role of spirituality for you and in your life and. Uh, you know, you you were the only man I have seen who made Steve Harvey cry <laughs> on his daily talk show. <laughs> when you and your dad actually talked about his addiction and about forgiveness, and uh, you know, just tell us about spirituality and and how you, given all that you have seen and all that you see every day, avoid succumbing to bitterness. Yeah, I you know. Um... <laughs> Uh, spirituality is really, um, you know, has been my only uh, my only refuge. Um, you know, I was, um, you know, after um, a major incident with my father at um, about uh, ten years old, um, I came home and really was um, in a place where I wasn't um, uh, I wasn't I wasn't happy uh, at at 10 and really felt lost. And I had a neighbor who said to me that, and and I was crying and and saying that, you know, I didn't have a dad and and what was I going to do because um, how how was I going to know what to do if if I didn't have a father? Um, And he, uh, he said to me, he said, well, you do have a father. Um, and that that father that father is God, and mm-hmm. you know at ten years old, I mean you're very impressionable. Um, so I guess I was indoctrinated uh, at that point. And he said you can talk to God like he's your father. I mean you can come in and tell him about your day, tell him what happened, and you, he'll he'll hear you. Um, and so uh, and so I tried it. You know, I was a latchkey kid, you know. I don't even know if they use those terms anymore, but, um, you know, I, I came home at, 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 at 10, 11 years old, and I was in the house. Uh, my mother was working. Um, my sisters are much older than me, so they were already gone pretty much out of the home. And so, uh, you know, I'm making dinner for myself and my, my, my mom, um, and doing homework and, 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 and trying to be responsible. Um, and I would come home and say, guess what happened today, Dad, uh, in, a, in, a, in an empty house um, and speaking to my God. Um, and uh, I, felt com- I felt comfort. Um, I felt a peace. Uh, and that peace um, is a peace I still feel. is a is a confidence that um, um, that if I submit, if I take the time to seek the type of choices that a Christ example sought, that if I study those teachings and attempt to walk in those teachings that my God will be faithful to me more than I could possibly be to him. And so, 
you know, as I've, I've grown, grown into a man, I've, I've failed miserably um, uh, in, in the midst of that knowledge, even though I had and have been cultivating that knowledge since a young age. I've failed miserably. I've turned my back um, on principles that I knew were principles of godly success. Um, but then there's this thing called grace. <laughs> there's this thing called <laughs> grace, this unmerited favor that we learn about for those who, who are believers, that we believe you can't out-sin, um, that you can't possibly do anything that bad that won't allow for you to... Um, to be redeemed, and so that doesn't mean you attempt to do that, right? Because you may run out of time um, to, to reap the benefit of God's grace if you're wreaking havoc saying that God's grace will save you. Um, so it doesn't give you license. Um, but what it does, it allows you to not feel condemned or have shame when you have to turn back to him and say, I'm sorry. Um, you know you'll be forgiven. These types of pr- principles, especially for someone like me who's damaged, right? So mm-hmm. I'm I'm excited about those who don't need God, right? Don't need a, a Christ example, because then then maybe they're not as damaged as I am, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they haven't been as mishandled as I have. Uh, maybe they don't need to forgive someone for doing something or. Or, or not doing what they said they were going to do. Maybe, maybe their life has been full of, um, there's been no disappointments. And so if that's the case, then you, 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 you may not. You may, you, you may look at me and say, well, why do you give so much faith to that? Well, it's because I've been disappointed. Right? So I've been mishandled. Um, I've been in positions where um, both put in and I put myself in where there was there was no way out uh and then there and then there was. Um and so my faithfulness, um, that example um of how Christ walked um is an example that I I, I choose to, to pursue. Um and it's and it's being lived out in who I am and what I believe um, and how I engage uh, both my friends and my enemies. Um, and so, um, you know, godly manhood um, is something that, uh, especially in the type of work that I do, um, gives me the ability to continue the work to see what I see. Um, can you imagine? Can you imagine seeing someone's son um, on a cold table? Um mm where your job is to um is to uh pull uh bullets out of that young person um can you can you can you imagine um um someone's mother who uh, who was in a car accident and your job is to is to literally put her back together um uh, a faithfulness in god that my job is to be a voice for the voiceless, um, that um, uh, my calling is to articulate uh, failed policy and programs in a way that individuals can act upon. Um, it's a calling that I take very seriously, and that calling truly does come from a, 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 a basis in faith. And, you know, Roger, you, you really are flipping this role of medical examiner and forensic pathologist on its head and, um, you know, pun totally intended, you are breathing life into that role and you carry this message of prevention to your people and to um, communities. And in that way, I think your work is probably bigger than the one victim that you might be examining at any one point in time, you do tell the last story for that person who lays there before you on the table. Um, But you also are 
I think, really infusing a level of innovation in the work that you do by using your work to, for example, track data to save lives and really using your platform again for prevention. And I wonder if you would just speak, you know, in the last couple of minutes that we have about your aspirations for for yourself and for black people. Well, um, you know, uh, right now, um, you know, I'm really blessed to be in a position um, to be uh, at the forefront in leadership in the field. Um, and uh, one of the most notable uh, cities in the world uh, and so my job now is to ensure um, that forensic medicine is being performed um, at the highest level uh, where I stand. And so that's that's the job in, in front of me. Um, uh, I'm looking to that um, as 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 my immediate future, um, as far as um, the future of um, you know, uh, you know, Allison. I, I'm not even quite sure why I wrote um, I wrote this book um, um, from the standpoint of uh, the the attention that my father and I got for the forgiveness that I was able to generate for him. Um, once he uh, once he left and came back into my life, um, the response that we were getting was just so enormous of like stories and um, people forgiving their 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 father because they saw the seven minute Steve Harvey clip um, mm. that uh, it made it um, so important for me. Um, to even attempt to write a book that may encourage um, even more that would be willing to sit down and read it. Um, And so from that standpoint, we want to encourage men and fathers, uh, we want to encourage families um, to choose life. Um, Mm. uh, That's really uh, the message uh, that... Um, the depth that we've been choosing in our communities, choices that we've been making in the midst of our despair um, uh, are truly unacceptable. Uh, So it's so important for us to make rightly related choices. Um, In other words, live righteously uh, and then fight uh, the good fight against the unrighteous fight the good fight against policies that are coming in our community um, that do not, that are not friendly to our sovereignty. Um, But we have to first live as sovereigns. Uh, We have to first live. And the only way to live free um, and to be free is to serve. Um, That's the price of freedom. Um, The price of freedom is service. Um, and so those of us that had um, obtained freedom um, in the midst of slavery, which we live in now, if you've read the, the great book, uh, The New Jim Crow, um, mm-hmm. we, we know that we live in a very similar time um, as the um, mid to late 1800s with the amount of men that are in, black men that are in prison um, the amount of black families that are impoverished. Um, mm-hmm. The question is, is those of us that are free, uh, those of us that not are free because they're doctors, not are free because they're attorneys, uh, not are free because they're educated, but free because they're rightly related and living righteously and living uh, within a means of of, of of what's in front of them, those of us that are free, uh, are we willing to serve now? Right? Are we willing to be the abolitionists uh, today 
um, that our people were intuitively and mandated to be in the 1850s. Um, and so our community must, we must, especially our generation, this so-called X generation, must now rise up to be the abolitionists of this millennium. Um, we have to fight the good fight, but also hold ourselves to accountable to what righteousness looks like. Um, and that's, that's so difficult in this time of distraction. Um, in this time where everything seems more important uh, than family and relationships. Um, but I'm here to tell you now, and I'll, I'll say it, that there's nothing more important than the love that you can have for the person next to you. Um, and that's really our solution. It sounds so cliche, um, but in practice, um, what that love looks like. Um, and even if it's hard love through advocacy and protest, um, even if it's hard love through through elections and ensuring that we're taking seats of power, um, whatever that love looks like, it has to be done in love in order to ensure the safety and health of our community. Ooh-wee. Well, Roger, I am I am on my feet. I am standing up as an abolitionist. I am ready to go. <laughs> I am sad, though, that we are out of time. We are at the end of the show. Dr. Roger A. Mitchell is the chief medical examiner here in Washington, D.C. He is also the author of the forthcoming memoir, The Price of Freedom, A Son's Journey, and you can order your copy, pre-order your copy at freedomhasaprice.com. And am I right, Roger, that the, the book will be out and available on July 15th? Right. We are, we are looking at that date of July 15th and maybe about July 20th. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, but, yes, uh, we, are, we are in edits now, and um, we plan to go to print next week. Great. Well, audience, you are now officially certified know-it-alls about this crusader for freedom, Dr. Roger A. Mitchell. I have pre-ordered my copy. I urge you to pre-order yours of The Price of Freedom, A Son's Journey, freedomhasaprice.com. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Roger. It's my pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful week.